Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the Managing Director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens. Welcome to the next episode of EDGE. I'm Dr. Stephen Brown. It's my great pleasure this morning to introduce somebody who is a fluent uh, speaker of Spanish, who is with a team of people pioneering uh, work in terms of in supporting the work in terms of Alzheimer's disease, is a member of uh, the University of Queensland's Queensland Brain Institute and has a PhD in molecular neuroscience. Welcome, Dr. Rachel Della Harris. Rachel, how would you describe yourself? Well, thank you for that nice introduction, Stephen. Um, good question. How would I describe myself? I think I would probably say measured. I'm a, I'm a measured individual, particularly in my, um, my professional uh, life and career. Uh, as you indicated, speaking Spanish means that I do come from uh, Spanish heritage and notwithstanding the, the, the Spanish hot-headedness that people are quite well familiar with, I think um, my, my husband and my family would say that I'm probably not as measured as I think I am, but um, I think, you know, I do analyse situations. I use a lot of, um, I, I tend to think before I speak. My colleagues have over the years, you know, said to me, are you not passionate about this discussion or, um, you know, it, and it probably reflects that I'm, I'm observing, I'm thinking, I'm considering how to respond to a situation. So certainly at work, I would say I'm, I'm a measured individual. That doesn't mean that I'm not passionate, um, particularly in in the roles that I've done over the years. I'm very passionate about them. Um, you know, I do, to an extent, live and breathe my work. So if I'm I, I'm undertaking and working on a, a project with with a group of individuals, I'm 100% on board with what's being done. Um, so, you know, I think caring and being empathetic around with team members, uh, my colleagues, so that we're all striving to achieve the same goals and outcomes, I think is, is pretty much what describes me, um, you know, of course, we all have times when we get frustrated or we get angry. And I think if you can control and manage it well, it's it's a great aspect to a pers- personality. It's just unfortunate 
that for some people they, they don't know how to control their anger, but it's something that can really force you to take charge of a situation or to say, right, oh, you know, I've accepted as much as I'll accept in, in this particular aspect and I'm going to actually affect change um, and do that in a positive and transformational way. So I would describe myself as measured, but I suspect my family and friends uh, may use some other terms. Well, we're not uh, we're going to pursue those this morning, Rachel. <laughs> my interactions with you have always been wonderful and uh, very uh, interesting, um, very inquisitive about the work you do. Take us back to the daughter of Spanish immigrants into uh, Australia and Victoria, to your childhood and... Um, do you always have this fascination or interest in finding out and gaining an understanding and measurement and investigation? This whole interest in science, uh, did it emerge or was it always there? I think it was probably always there. I think part of my, um, my intrinsic self is to understand why things happen. You know, all, all, all children go through a phase of asking why, why, but why. And trying to understand not just why, but perhaps how how people uh, respond to situations, how they react to situations. Um, also, being quite self self reflective. I think I've always been self reflective as well. Um, as a, I think, as a child, I. I Intrinsically had those, but obviously as I as I grew and developed and had more varied experiences, then that kind of stayed. I just kept asking and wondering why things happen, why people behave in in the ways that they do. Um, the Indiana Jones movies were probably yeah. the thing that made me think, "Wow, this is." This can be really exciting, you know, exciting. Um, so originally I I actually wanted to be an archaeologist, um, but I was even at a very young age, I, I, I thought, well, I don't think there's too many uh, jobs for archaeologists <laughs> and particularly maybe not so in Australia, but, they're, they're, you know, that's probably not necessarily the case. But from there grew that, I think, that... Uh, passion for science. I mean, through high school, you know, science, the science, biology, uh, chemistry, physics, the maths, you know, I wasn't an excellent math student, for example, but I still enjoyed it. And certainly biology, chemistry were my, my preferred and favourite classes. Um, you know, it certainly helps when you have good teachers at school, um, you know, I did have a, a very um, outstanding biology teacher, I think in grade nine, Mr Lipson. And um, I remember we, we went on a field trip and he was talking us, you know, he gave us a one metre by one metre plot that we had to count all the the organisms, plants, the insects within that, that plot and graph them and do all of that sort of thing. But for a lot of us, we're... We, not necessarily myself, but for some of um, the other students, you know, it was it was a bore. Um, 
a boring task. They didn't really feel passionate about it. But what this teacher was able to do was when he would describe and talk about, um, you know, the insect or the particular plant and he would infuse this um, passion and just gave it this aura. It just sounded magical that you just thought, oh, no, I really want to know how many of these, um, you know, plants and how does that compare to the plot that my friend's counting three metres away and do I have more insects because I've got more of this plant and flower than, you know, my um, my friend across on the other side of the hill. So, you know, he, he really, I think, sparked the that passionate side of this is actually really, really interesting um, and and that we don't know there's so much that we don't know um, and we don't realise actually what we don't know, which is the curious thing of um, the knowledge base. Um, and uh, when you, you learn the scientific method and you do practise critical thinking and scientific thinking, um, you actually start to appreciate, you know, wow, we've been here for thousands of years, it's probably only been the last couple hundred where we've really started to acquire, um, you know, the knowledge that we've been building on and every generation builds on not on the knowledge of the past generation to get where we are. But there's actually so much more that needs to be learnt and that is unknown and, and things that we don't even know, that we don't know them. Um, and, again, I had a... And that concept of you don't, there's, there's work, you know, there's things that you don't even know that you don't know, that, that concept was first brought to my attention um, by a, a great sort of manager that I had in another role uh, at a biotech company. And that was the first time I, I heard that and I thought, well, I'm always, <laughs> it's not something that you think about going through school, university, you're constantly acquiring and learning more and um, you just don't realise that you don't even know what you don't know. So that was that was a revelation to me, uh, as were a number of other things that we'll probably touch on later. But um, so always been inquisitive, always wanted to break things down and understand why things are the way they are. Obviously, there's a lot of things in life that are out of our control that, you know, even if you if you understand them or don't understand them, they happen to you and they might impact and change, you know, decisions you make, life choices you make, the trajectory of your potential um, for achievement in life. So it's interesting. Um, I think my, my parents were... I would say unconventional because if they were conventional, they probably would not have emigrated to Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think about what it takes to leave comfort of life, um, family, that which you know, to go to another country to, in their case, I think it, it wasn't, as, as in most cases, it wasn't um, a permanent planned move but more more opportunity to get out and you know 
see what what's happening in other areas um, outside of Spain. So they, you know, they were both based and living in Madrid um, and not long after marriage or I think immediately, you know, within a month of marriage they um, they emigrated to Australia and, you know, they, they had their first son not long after arriving. I followed five years later. Then there was another son who followed another five years later and, and, a, and another daughter. So I'm the second oldest of four children. Um, English was not the first language for me. So it's interesting that, you know, with four siblings, for some of us, English was probably the first language. My older brother and I, Spanish was the first language. But by the time my younger brother and sister came along, my older brother and I were predominantly speaking English at home and um, Spanish with our parents. But we, we were speaking English with the other two. So even, even from that perspective and how that might influence your learning at school or your interaction um, with friends and things um, would be interesting to, to sort of tease out. So just from that perspective, we would have had different, different opportunities and different, um, different perspectives, I guess. So there's DNA of inquisition, pardon the Spanish relationship, but uh, of inquisition, but uh, inquiry in terms of investigation and uh, your parents leaving Madrid, coming to Australia, foreign land, um, being a minority in a bigger country. It's an extraordinary story in terms of, I know a little bit about it. So being a female, um, a young girl in uh, Australia and uh, who presented as somebody different. Uh, did you feel different or? No, um, I think my my parents, but particularly probably my father, um, really instilled a, a sense of individual in all of us. Like you're an individual, you're not, because you associate with, um, a particular person or uh, you have um, a group of friends, you're still an individual within that group and to always think as an individual and not to, not to follow um, others. Um, so I think where all of us are quite, well, I would say that all, all, all of the children are quite individual in, in the way that they, in the thoughts they have, the way that they behave. Um, we were kind of, you know, at home, um, dad in particular would probably mock a lot of, um, you know, whether they were actors or, you know, eminent people um, that might talk outside or present opinions outside of their area of expertise. So it was always, you know, talk to that which which you know and be an individual. And because someone does something brilliant in a particular area of life, you know, and you might 
hear their story and you might want to emulate that story, but it doesn't mean that you emulate their whole life because other aspects of their life might not be um, worth emulating. So it's almost like at some point take at face value what you're hearing um, and then question for yourself um, and understand whether you agree with it, whether it fits with your values, whether you accept it. So it's interesting to think, you know, I sometimes reflect on, well, what is the new social media age doing? Because um, you see a lot less individualised, you know, there's a lot more people doing the same stuff, um, presenting themselves in the same way. It's fascinating because you can see when we talk to people, I and mean, you know, you just said it, you know, what forms you in informs you. And those strong values, your mum and your dad, and knowing your dad a little bit, uh, that strength of character, the pursuit of inquiry, making up your own mind, looking for the evidence, don't take things at face value, those particular uh, dispositions or characteristics <laughs> expressing that broader professional life that you, um, you've got an impressive record of having undertaken in, in a range of uh, fields within the science sector. Take us to, Rachel, this intriguing um, work as um, team leader or program manager or around Alzheimer's that um, is such a, a insidious disease, but something we've got to continue to pursue on behalf of humanity to try and contribute to support our us as people. So do you want to tell us, it's a very broad area, but um, tell us a little bit about the work you're doing. Sure. So, you know, so for every three seconds, uh, a person globally is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Wow. It's it's every three seconds. It's amazing. If you stand in a room of individuals above the age of, say, about 60, 65, one in 10 of you will develop Alzheimer's. So, you know, it's a huge problem that we're facing. And in part, we're living in a very privileged age where fortunate to be extending um, our average life expectancy. So the, the single greatest risk for Alzheimer's or the dementias broadly is, um, is age. Uh, so you can imagine that it's not something that's going to go away, but it's going to grow, the problem's going to grow. And, you know, unlike many other diseases, Alzheimer's is something that, that sneaks up on families. It'll, you know, affect an individual, but it really has a um, profound debilitating impact on all of that individual's network and, you know, particularly their close uh, family, carers, and for, for the individuals uh, watching this disease take hold of their loved one, you know, they're seeing that person lose their memories, lose their life experiences. So it's a very, um, it's cruel, very cruel disease. So the work that we're doing here is really 
to, to try and see if we can find a, a therapy, a solution that either prolongs the time of the disease sort of incubation. So the disease can start in the brain up to 20 years before you have symptoms that show. So if you can delay the onset of those, you know, brain um, symptoms, so the memory loss, um, the the impacts to your ability to, to think and act and um, so your cognition, so if you can delay those, uh, then that, that will help. But obviously you want to try and find a cure. But, you know, people have been looking, hundreds of people, hundreds of scientists, very smart, brilliant individuals, lots of money, for, you know, for many, many years, many decades, uh, and there's still no, there's no cure and there's no real treatment that will, you know, change the, the trajectory of the disease. So, you know, there's mm-hmm. been hundreds of drugs that have been developed. Um, there's a couple promising drugs, you know, in late stage development, but the work being done here at the Queensland Brain Institute with Professor Jürgen Gertz and the team is really thinking, well, is there another alternative to, to drugs and is there a, another way to change the, the disease that's happening in the brain? And so that's through the use of ultrasound. Um, and it seems really unlikely most people will think of ultrasound as, um, you know, a, a diagnostic tool. You, you go and, you you know, if you're pregnant, um, it gives you the ability to, to see your baby, you know, look for your liver or your different organs if you've got kidney stones, for example. So it's, it's, it's a modality that's very broadly used. But um, the way we're using ultrasound is at much lower frequencies. So, um, it's it's useful as a diagnostic to to see inside the body because it's used at a very high frequency. It's like um, sonar. It's effectively bouncing off you know objects inside the body, and to do that really well, you, you use high frequency ultrasound. So we're using it at relatively very low frequencies. It's still at a frequency that's beyond audible hearing and you know, we're using it to apply ultrasound to the brain. And one of the key uh, impediments to doing that effectively is the skull because the skull is a hard structure and ordinarily ultrasound bounces off the skull. So it's reflected um, off the skull and very little uh, ultrasound energy actually passes through the skull and into the brain. And so one of the reasons we're using low frequency is that it actually does allow us to penetrate through the skull and into the brain and to deliver the amount of energy that we require to affect changes in the brain that we're trying to affect. And so I joined the the team here at the Queensland Brain Institute, which for, for some people looking at my career trajectory and the different roles I've had, um, and one of the things I was told not long after I completed my PhD and I was still working in the academic environment, um, you know, I was told if you leave academia, you, you'll never come back. 
So, you know, I was straight out of a PhD doing my first postdoc and at that time, you know, yes, I love science and it's fantastic and uh, gives you a real sense of um, enjoyment and achievement when you find something new and different or prove yourself wrong or prove yourself right. Um, I still knew that the academic environment was not for me. So, you know, I do live and breathe my work, but it doesn't mean I don't want my own personal work-life balance as well. And what I was seeing, this is, you know, some 20 years ago, was that the the funding for discovery science was poor and it's a lot worse these days, that researchers were spending inordinate amounts of time uh, writing grants and proposals for uh, raising funding and they really had to, you know, work evenings, weekends, and you really had to live and breathe it 100%. And even then your chances of, you know, being funded were really quite low. So for me that seemed like a really high-value proposition in terms of time and effort with a lot of risk. And I thought, well, you know, I do want work-life balance. Um, I want to be able to turn my brain off at some point you know, of an evening um, to go home and be fully immersed in my personal home life, not to have my mind still thinking about work. And so getting out into a commercial environment was what I thought might give me that. So, you know, I was told effectively, if you leave, you probably won't come back. And the main reason is because if you're working in a commercial environment, you're not publishing work and so the major way that scientists are measured is on their publication out and outputs. Um, that's starting to change a little bit, but but still, um, it's you know it's very important for scientists to publish. But but I made the leap, um, and I was really fortunate to be able to find a role where I could be a senior scientist, effectively discovery application lab in a in a company so there are very very few roles like that in Australia but I was very fortunate and that that role was here in in Brisbane at that time and that was my first foray into the more structured um, application of science with a developmental translational type of application and because I've had a number of those roles now that's now a, a skill set and an experience base that doesn't nor ordinarily exist in a university setting. And so what the team here at the Queensland Brain Institute were trying to do was move their discovery through that development translation process and into the clinic. And so I was told that this role was available or, you know, the, the, um, the yeah, team yeah. looking for someone with those type of skills and I thought... It kind of is perfect for me, and so um, I'm lucky to join the team and bring bring those skills. So day to day, it's um, you know working with multidisciplinary team, all individuals that are brilliant, high performers, strive for excellence in their day to day job and outputs, and working with with them to you know try and bring together 
this medical device that will apply ultrasound to deliver this mechanism of action that we believe is happening to reduce the amyloid and tau load in the brain and also alongside improve memory and cognition. You know, it's a super exciting program to be involved in and just working with extraordinary individuals on a really complex task is is really exciting. So I, I actually have arrived kind of back in academia, but bringing that commercial. So that's, you know, one of the passions that I've developed over the years is, is seeing all these amazing Australian discoveries that don't get translated into products and new methods of treatment um, and diagnosis that um, should. So, you know, we lose a lot of our inventions offshore and that means that Australia loses the value of capitalising on their value and the wealth creation of that invention that's been founded here in Australia. Well, that's another broad topic. Um, so many ideas just running through my mind there. You but naturally uh, are a person who started out life asking the why and the how questions and you continue to find your why and your how in, the, in looking at some of the what in your work. Uh, so what's next uh, for Dr Rachel Delaharis? So really it's it's continuing to work with the team here to get this treatment that we believe we have a, a solution that will modify or improve um, Alzheimer's disease. So it's continuing to work with the team here to prove that, yes, it, it does work and it's um, possible or that, no, you know, we've, we've given it our best shot and it, it's event potentially not the solution. But I, I think it, it's criminal to not give new ideas and inventions, an opportunity to be proven right or wrong. So one of the difficulties of this program is the cost, the time, the expectations. So managing expectations because you can make your best efforts, your best guided, best informed um plans for all of the steps required to get to the clinic and at the end of the day it's science and um, we make our best efforts um, to use the guiding principles of the scientific method and you know we, we sometimes have to use um, and build assumptions around um, how something might play out because back to what I mentioned earlier is there's a lot that we don't know that we don't know and that applies absolutely to the brain. The brain is is the last frontier in terms of um, how it works, how does it give rise, how do 
um, all these networks of cells and chemicals in the brain give rise to conscious thought and how, you know, how and why does disease play out the way that it does? So there's so much about the brain that we don't know um, how it works. So in order to translate a finding out of the lab to a human brain application, we have to make a lot of assumptions about, you know, how the cells will behave, um, what other effects there'll be. Um, And so... We do everything we can to test out those assumptions, to prove them right or wrong, to adjust our plans moving forward in the lab, but you're still in the lab. You're not actually affecting or, or you're not doing experimentation mm. on a human. Mm. So we, we have to adjust our plans and our expectations. So one of the big, big aspects of the work that I do here with the team is helping them through all of that expectation management you know, you can imagine for, for high-performing individuals when you say, well, you know, we've got this fantastic plan, we believe we're going to be at this stage of the plan in six months' time, all sorts of things happen along the way. It's all part of your learning and proving out that maybe some of your assumptions not were, were not quite right, um, but it just adds delay. And so ensuring that, you know, People stay with us, those, those that provide, you know, incredible philanthropic support, uh, incredible in-house support uh, from within the Queensland Brain Institute, from within the University of Queensland and from um, all of our broader donors um, that, you know, donate money to, to this shared goal of trying to find a way to reduce the burden of Alzheimer's in the community. So managing expectations, time, continuing to raise funding and bringing people along with you on the journey so that it's really well understood that um, there's no guarantees, but, you know, it'd be terrible to not do everything you can to give it your best shot. You know, I said earlier that I did want work-life balance but it's interesting through your career, the more um, more challenging roles that you take on and the more you grow and learn and develop yourself, you actually start to blur what, what work is, what life is. And so it, it's interesting. It gets to a point if you're lucky enough to enjoy your work that those lines become blurred. So for me, it's it's just continuing, continuing that because it's, you know, it's really satisfying, really satisfying work. Rachel, in conclusion, I just want to thank you on behalf of so many people, the work you and your colleagues are pursuing uh, in your terms of the last frontier, the brain, and every three seconds uh, that will stay with me hopefully forever, um, in terms of my life and the significance of the work you're doing. The podcast in Tiled Edge, I don't need to draw the uh, connection to that. You are and your colleagues pushing those boundaries. Uh, a very complex apparatus, uh, the brain, and uh, managing expectations. But we hope that 
we are well placed with support behind you and the team to actually uh, tackle this last frontier. So, Rachel, thank you again for just uh, profound uh, work and you can see um, the dedication, the passion, the authenticity and commitment that you have uh, along with your colleagues to something you dearly love and it uh, is a life's work and we thank you, Rachel, for the work that you do. Oh, thank you so much. It's, again, uh, you know, it's always interesting and exciting for us to be able to share the work that's being done here. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown One. Please join us next time for another episode of EDGE.